I'd like to share with you a teaching that Robert Aitken Roshi once gave. He's a well-known and well-loved Zen master. And he said, when you reflect on the infinite number of happenstances that coalesce to produce you, then you understand how unique, how sacred, how precious you really are. Your task is to cultivate that precious, sacred nature and help it to flower. This is the work that we're doing here, learning to cultivate that precious, sacred nature and helping it to flower. On whatever road we we travel, if we're really dedicated to the awakening of our hearts and minds, there are two basic qualities that are needed. These are the qualities of wisdom and compassion. And this is what we're cultivating as we cultivate our sacred nature. And the Buddha likened these two qualities of wisdom and compassion to the two wings of a bird. And as we all know, the bird needs two wings in order to fly. And they must be strong and in balance. So too must our hearts and minds embrace both of these qualities. As we've been sitting here over the last few weeks and things begin to calm down, to quiet down, there may be moments where we have slight glimmers or moments where we have this sense of awe, of seeing something really new, seeing something in a fresh way. It may be a moment where there's been some pleasant experience and we become attached, but then we see our attachment and we don't react, we don't judge it. We simply know that it's there. We may also have moments of just complete simplicity. There's a lot of sound, we're hearing noises, oftentimes telling repeating what's happening with the sounds, whatever. And then, in one moment, there's no subject, no object. It's just a moment of pure hearing. I remember on my first long retreat that it was these moments of complete simplicity that really touched me most deeply. There can also be moments where our hearts touch the interconnectedness of life. It may be that we see someone who's having difficulty and we can simply hold them in our hearts. Or maybe someone's moving past us, moving very carelessly and bumps into us. And instead of a habituated response of anger, we can feel their pain. We can open to their pain. In all of these moments, we're beginning to see wisdom and compassion. When we think of the qualities of wisdom and compassion, and compassion here also includes the very tender and caring heart. But when we think of these qualities that each of them have, it's probably very different qualities that come to mind. 
But what's so interesting, at least to me, is that through the practice or through the power of awareness, we begin to see how linked these qualities are. When we're in the space of wisdom, compassion naturally arises. When we're filled with compassion, it's easy to make wise choices. As our practice unfolds, we begin to see how inseparable they are. Lama Surya Das, a Western teacher of Tibetan meditation, says about wisdom and compassion, if it looks like wisdom, but it's unkind rather than loving, it's not wisdom. If it feels like love, but it's not wise, it's not love. Our vipassana or insight meditation is a direct means of cultivating wisdom. The purpose of the practice that we're doing here is not to become deeply absorbed into beautiful states, into calm and peaceful states, or to have wonderful meditation experiences. Although this may be a part of our practice, it's not anywhere near what the full potential of this practice is. This practice has the full potential to cut through the very roots of greed, hatred, and delusion. These are the habits of mind that are constantly propelling us through life. When greed, hatred, and delusion are present, we're not seeing life clearly. It's as though our vision is colored by these states and the purity of mind is obscured. We become caught in a torrent of reacting to life, moving towards that which is pleasant and away from that which is unpleasant, or simply spacing out or disconnecting from life. So this practice has the potential to cut through this delusion, to dispel the confusion, and to cut through to the very truth of life itself. As this practice is a wisdom practice, this happens through understanding. This comes about when mindfulness is strong. Mindfulness, or the ability to simply see things as they are, without adding to our experience or taking anything away from it. When we have continuity of mindfulness, it becomes very penetrating. We move beyond seeing life on a very superficial level. And it's when we're looking at life from the superficial level that we're bound by ignorance. It works in much the same way as if we're out walking in the dark. In the dark, we can start to imagine all kinds of creatures lurking in the corners. However, if we walk the same path in the light, everything is illuminated. There's nothing left unseen. We can begin to see things as they really are. Our understanding begins to show us how it is that we're suffering. And when we understand how it is that we're suffering, we then have the choice to be free of suffering. When we understand our own suffering, it's natural that we feel compassion towards those who are caught in suffering. 
The word vipassana denotes an intuitive flash of knowing or insight that reveals the three characteristics that are common to all experience. These three characteristics are anicca, or impermanence, dukkha, suffering or unsatisfactoriness, and anatta, the impersonal and insubstantial nature of arising experience. And these three characteristics are what we will encounter over and over again in our practice. There may be times in practice where one characteristic is more evident, but each characteristic leads to the scene of the other characteristics. A Nietzsche or an impermanence constitutes a large part of what our experience is. And Michelle spoke a lot about impermanence last night, and I'd like to touch upon it again tonight, because the difference between having an intellectual understanding of it and having a direct experience is so vast. It's something that, on one level, we all have understanding of. We see changes in in ourselves and in the world around us all the time. As we're sitting here during the day, there's been many mind states that have come and gone, many experiences that have come and gone. The world around us is changing, the weather's constantly changing, the season's changing. It's very evident that change is there. And we can all probably say, yes, change happens. And sometimes it's probably not even quick enough. And then there's the moments when we don't accept the change, when we're left hanging on to our experience, feeling humiliated or betrayed as experience disappears. We begin to take it very personally. And then there's the times in practice or in life when we see so deeply the nature of change that we have a moment where we experience groundlessness. We see very deeply how everything is in constant flux and there is no security. There may be times in practice when we have the balance of mind that can accept this, open to it. And then there's other times when we might experience it when it brings up terror, fear. It's as if the world under our feet crumbles and falls away. It's as if everything we touch is just disappearing in that moment. And it can bring up an incredible sense of vulnerability. The world as we know it ends. It may be reborn again in the next moment, but that too passes away. And this is a fact of life. All conditioned phenomena are impermanent. Everything that we experience in our minds and bodies is impermanent. It's all subject to arising and passing away. And we see this. Pain that we may be sitting with, a pain in the knee, it's stabbing, searing, and then in a split second, sometimes it disappears. 
or we're sitting very peaceful, tranquil, the mind is concentrated, and then somebody sneezes loudly, and we become agitated, tight, and we get restless. Or we've had the most wonderful sitting of our whole life, sitting so peaceful and contented, and suddenly, for no apparent reason, we want to get up. Why? Because things change. Last year I was sitting a self-retreat at a small retreat center. And it's a very lovely place out in the country, and there's three cabins. And my cabin was at the bottom of a hill, and so it meant that I couldn't see anyone around me. And it felt very secluded and private. And I was very happy to have this opportunity to be in this little cabin for a period of time. And I had been settling into the retreat, and it was after about ten days, the refrigerator in my cabin broke down. And the people who took care of the retreat center were away, so it wasn't possible for it to be repaired. And this meant that I had to move into another cabin. And it seemed fine. No, it's just impermanence. Here it is again. And I felt quite at ease with it. And so I packed up all my stuff and I moved into the other cabin. And as I was unpacking, I'd go to hang up my towel. And there wouldn't be the perfect place to hang it, like they'd been in my last cabin. And I'd go to put my toiletry bag away, and there wasn't a little shelf to put it on, like my last cabin had. And then there was mice in this cabin, and there hadn't been in the last cabin. And there was nowhere to put my food where the mice couldn't get it. And each time I made one of these discoveries, I'd have a moment of sadness. And I'd remember back to how perfect it had been in my last cabin. And then, as this kept happening, uh, I just, there came a moment when I went to put something in its place and there was no perfect place to put it, where suddenly I felt the groundlessness. I realized in my last cabin how I, what I had been doing was making myself as comfortable as possible. And in doing so, I had been creating this illusion of security. And suddenly I realized there is no security. There is no security to be found. It made for an interesting moment after that when I would again be putting things away. And suddenly I'd realize I was moving towards comfort once again. And I'd think, okay, so what do I do? Do I make it more painful? (laughs) Which didn't seem to be the way to go either. So what I began to do was just to simply be very aware of the pleasantness or the unpleasantness that would arise. So much of our lives are spent trying to make ourselves more secure. And when we really see that there's no security in these experiences that are passing by, it can bring about profound transformation, can affect the way we live our lives. And although this is ultimately ultimately liberating, sometimes our first response isn't so liberating. 
we may have a strong sense of loss or grief. I remember having it come up very strongly at one point in my life that there was nothing to hang on to and all of the stories that I continually tell myself about who I am and it just suddenly all seems so pointless. Why? And I know at times there's been great sadness as things disappear. And what the practice has helped me to do is to stay with the sadness so that I can see what it is that I'm hanging on to, what it is that's creating the suffering. My clo- Michael Lunick, who's a well-known Australian cartoonist whose work often has a dharmic twist, expresses impermanence in this way. We give thanks for the invention of the handle. Without it, there would be many things we couldn't hold on to. As for the things we can't hold on to anyway, let us gracefully accept their ungraspable nature and celebrate all things elusive, fleeting, and intangible. They mystify us and make us receptive to truth and beauty. We celebrate and give thanks. Learning to rest in the changes of life without grasping or clinging to what passes by without taking personally that which is pleasant, has nurtured us, has been a sanctuary, and then simply disappears. Not identifying with the changing states as to who we are, letting the depth of our understanding of the impermanence of all conditioned phenomena be so rooted in our being that we're no longer thrown off balance by these changes. We also, through our practice, begin to see into the truth of suffering. In Pali, the word that is used is dukkha, which is often translated as suffering. But it probably has a a much broader meaning than how we normally think of the word suffering. We can readily understand it when we think of mental, physical, and emotional states that give rise to unpleasant conditions, but the word dukkha extends beyond this. We find an inherent unsatisfactoriness in our experiences of mind and body because they are always changing. This means that there's no lasting happiness to be found in experience. Even though we may have moments of temporary happiness, they simply pass away, and they're not a means to fulfillment. Similarly, all experience is insubstantial and as such illusory. With the appearance of things, we have the illusion of something solid being there, something we can count on, and then it passes as if in a dream. Dukkha also refers to a state of unbalanced due to the ceaseless arising and passing away of our experience. These can be pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral experiences. 
And the stronger our awareness becomes, the more we are aware of the relentlessness of this. And at times in practice, it can seem quite torturous to be always noting, always aware of these experiences. We can see it if at the end of the day, when we crawl into bed, if we have that same willingness to be present with our experience, or are we wanting to roll over and turn out the lights? We also see it in our practice. We may have the desire to sit for a long period of time, and the body becomes very uncomfortable, wanting to move all the time, pain coming and going, and we begin to feel the oppressiveness of this body. As I speak about suffering, I'm reminded of when I first started, first went to a, a Buddhist retreat. And I went home from that retreat and I said, hmm, Buddhists really have a thing about suffering. <laughs> <laughs> and each time I'd go to a, a, a Dharma talk and the word suffering would come up, I'd think, oh yeah, here they go again. <laughs> and then through my practice, I became deep aware of deeper and deeper levels of suffering. And at first, I thought that maybe it was simply because of the practice, that the practice was perpetuating the suffering, and that maybe this wasn't the right practice for me. But then, as I continued to sit, it dawned on me that what I was experiencing was a magnified version of the way that I lived my life, of that movement towards the pleasant, away from the unpleasant, or just really spacing out. <laughs> and when I realized that it, it really was the w- way I was living my life, I became very interested in the suffering. And it's central to our practice, learning to open to that which is painful, unpleasant, cut off, all those places that we separate away from as not being okay. It's not that we want to wallow in these states, but just that we want to be able to come to understand them for what they are. The society we live in today is very geared towards a denial of suffering. We institutionalize the handicapped or the sick. We put the aging in homes, and we cover over the dying process. And as a result, we often get the impression that when suffering happens to us, it's because we've done something wrong or bad. And then we try to hide it, gloss it over, cut off, pretend that it isn't happening, sweeping things under the carpet. We may move into embarrassment or shame. Sitting here in the room, it becomes easy to imagine that everyone around us is having a wonderful retreat and that we're the only ones sitting in misery and suffering. Buddha once described how if you put all of the water from the four oceans together, it's still nothing in comparison to all of the tears that have been shed through suffering. And if we just look into our own life, at the suffering that we've encountered. Many of us may not have had first-hand experience with starvation, violence, 
wars, but I still know for myself that there's been times of great agony. And then if we look at the number of the people on the planet, and many of these people have been exposed to starving, starvation, are living in a state of uncertainty with wars raging around them, and many people living in violent, abusive situations. We just see how much suffering there is. And then if we look back in time to all of the beings that have walked this planet, it becomes an immense amount of suffering. So it's important to come to understand that suffering does exist. It brings an honesty into our lives, helping us to recognize the difficulties we face. We may experience feelings of fear, rage, despair, anger, and grief. If we deny or suppress them, we're only temporarily cutting ourselves off from these feelings. We need to come to accept them, not judging them, hating them, but coming to a place of opening to them and accepting them with the heart of friendliness. In this acceptance, we begin to taste the freedom. And in this way, we're not suffering just for the sake of suffering, but we're suffering in order to be free of suffering. During my first trip to Burma after a few months, I started to experience a lot of anger, hatred, and ill will. And it was quite shocking to me. I'd always thought of myself as being a reasonably kind person. And these states were coming up very strong. I remember hearing once the um, about how there comes a time in practice where it's if you, as if you look into this mirror and you see this really ugly face, and it's so ugly you're repulsed by it, and you throw the mirror onto the floor and it shatters into a thousand pieces, and a thousand ugly, horrible faces become reflected back to you. <laughs> and that was pretty much how my practice was feeling. And then I realized that these states that I was experiencing in my own mind were no different than the states that fueled wars, crime, violence, abuse. Here they were, right inside my own mind. It was very humbling. It became a very difficult period for me, where the only refuge was to hold these states with compassionate heart there became a softening towards this being that was suffering. And it also helped me to connect with the universality of suffering. No longer could I condemn those who were full of hatred, who were violent, who were causing the wars. But I could begin to hold them in my heart, knowing how deep their pain was. And when we see deeply into the nature of suffering, it is a natural response to feel compassion. Anatta, or the impersonal or insubstantial nature of experience, is said to be the most difficult teaching of the Buddha. But we do come to understand it more deeply through impermanence.
we see how these constantly changing conditions are not who we are. We see how fluid our experience is, and it becomes impossible to define ourselves as being one way. And yet we can still struggle with this sense of this experience as referring back to someone. We may have an experience of calmness, and there's this sense that it's me who is calm. Or we ha- we're noting, and we have this sense that it's me who is noting. We're walking, and we have the sense of it's me who is walking. And it really is quite amazing how much that happens in life we begin to take ownership for. And this is a story about Mullah Nasruddin, a Sufi mystic. Nasruddin was walking past a well when he had the impulse to look into it. It was night, and as he peered into the deep water, he saw the moon's reflection there. I must save the moon, the mullah thought. Otherwise she will never wane, and the fasting month of Ramadan will never come to an end. He found a rope, threw it in, and called down, Hold on tight! Keep bright! Help is at hand! The rope caught in a rock inside the well, and Nasruddin heaved as hard as he could. Straining back, he suddenly felt the rope give as it came loose, and he was thrown on his back. As he lay there panting, he saw the moon riding in the sky above. Glad to be of service, said Nasruddin. Just as well I came along, wasn't it? As we continue on with our practice, we begin to see that the self that we refer back to is simply another construction. We see its rising and its disappearance, and that the so-called self is constantly in flux. To see into anatta doesn't mean that we rid ourselves of self, but we understand that this self is constructed and not a solid, separate unit in itself. Somehow many of us often encounter fear when we even begin, begin to think about there being no separate self. Yet the truth of it is, when we start looking into what we're calling self, that this is the place of suffering. And when we identify with this self, we move into a state of separation. And there's such a pain in separation. I'm sure that there's probably nobody in this room that when I talk about the pain of separation can't remember some time in their life where we experience just agony over feeling separate, feeling unloved, feeling not apart. And yet this is so often the barrier to which we cling to. As I said, this is one of the deepest teachings of there being no solid, separate self that the Buddha gave. And intellectually, we can drive ourselves crazy with this. Well, if there's no one here, Who is it that notes? Who is it that walks, that talks? Asking 
endless questions that bring us no closer, closer to the truth of understanding this. For me, what's worked best is not to, to take a position on it, not to take it on as a belief, but to use my practice to see for myself, bringing the quality of investigation to what it is that I'm calling self. Opening up to the possibility of anatta, and then through my practice, just continuing to see what happens. Ajahn Buddhadasa once said, We are giving back to nature the things that we have falsely appropriated from it. This mind, these feelings, this body, the breath itself, they do not really belong to us. When we see that, Instead of feeling deprived of something we thought was ours, we feel a great freedom, the liberation that the Buddha promised. Giving it all back to nature. I think in our culture it's really common that we feel cut off from nature, separate from it. And yet what we're hearing here is that it's only our minds that have cut us off from nature. It is only our thinking that we are separate that this mind and body belongs to us. Through our practice, we see over and over again how these characteristics are common to all that arises and that they are impersonal. In the seeing of this, we become less inclined to try to hold on to that which is impermanent. We have no need to take personally or feel that we have failed when we encounter that which is unpleasant. We're no longer broken or destroyed when we feel pain. We begin to see how all these qualities that we've been calling self are just passing mental and physical states and that they do not belong to us and that we have no control over what arises. And when we are less caught up in the personal nature of our suffering, we begin to open to and understand the universality of suffering. And this is the birthplace of compassion. (coughs) We don't have to wait until we're fully enlightened to begin to feel compassion for ourselves or others. It's a quality that grows hand in hand with the unfolding of wisdom. Compassion is classically described as the quivering or the trembling of the heart in response to suffering. It happens when we come in contact with suffering and we're able to connect and respond without being overwhelmed by the pain. It has a quality of fearlessness to it. It's where we're willing and able to act with the courageous heart that steps outside the boundaries of a small, separate self. Compassion may pull us into action when we come in contact with that which is unwholesome, harmful, or damaging to others. We become motivated by the desire to alleviate suffering rather than pulling away, cutting off, or denying it. Nyanaponikatera, who is a well-known German-born Theravadan monk, 
says about compassion. The world suffers, but most people have their eyes and ears closed. They do not see the unbroken stream of tears flowing through life. They do not hear the cry of distress continually pervading the world. Their own little grief or joy bars their sight, deafens their ears. Bound by selfishness, their heart turns stiff and narrow. Being stiff and narrow, how should they be able to strive for any higher goal? To realize that only release from selfish craving will affect their own freedom from suffering. It is compassion that removes the heavy bar, opens the door to freedom, makes the narrow heart as wide as the world. Compassion takes away from the heart the inert weight, the paralyzing heaviness. It gives wings to those who cling to the lowlands of self. This quality of compassion can be a very strong motivating force in our lives. It may be what brought us here. When we hear the cries of our own hearts and minds and the cries from the world around us, it moves us into wanting to help to alleviate the suffering, wanting to live a life that doesn't perpetuate more suffering. And our practice has the potential not just to affect our own lives, but also the lives of those around us, as our presence, words, and actions are more in touch with a place of caring, kindness, wisdom, and compassion. It can touch and inspire others to live from this place. Compassion is not something that we only need feel towards other, but something that is equally essential in relation to ourselves. Emma Chodron, in her book, Start Where You Are, says, it is unconditional compassion for ourselves that leads naturally to unconditional compassion for others. If we are willing to stand fully in our own shoes and never give up on ourselves, then we will be able to put ourselves in the shoes of others and never give up on them. True compassion does not come from wanting to help out those less fortunate than ourselves, but from realizing our kinship with all beings. Willing to stand firmly in our own shoes and never give up on ourselves. And this is what our practice is about. Never giving up on ourselves. Something that's greatly inspired me in my own practice has been to read stories of disciples of the Buddha who lived during his time. And I've been amazed at some of these stories, how people came with such immense suffering. And it was maybe not always in the first case that they never gave up on themselves. But the Buddha had such a strong conviction that awakening was possible, that it inspired them to never give up on themselves. In, in many stories that we hear, there was people who very quickly attained liberation. But there's also many stories of people who were very dedicated and had to stay with it year after year after year. 
and they never gave up. One such story is of a, a monk named Maham Pusadeva, and he would practice diligently every day. And as a part of his day, he would go from the monastery into the nearby village on his alms round. And he would do this very mindfully. And as he would be walking in, if suddenly he noticed that he was not mindful, he would stop and retrace his steps back to the point where he'd lost his mindfulness, and he'd begin again from there. Some of the village people thought, that maybe he'd lost something, (laughs) Um, were a little bit confused. But he would, even when they came up to see if he'd lost something, he would just continue to stay with his practice. And he did this diligently for 19 years. And then it's said in his 20th year, he attained liberation. I sometimes like to imagine what this hall would be like if we practiced in this way. It isn't easy, you know, as we so often just lapse into mindless, mindlessness. <laughs> we need to have incredible compassion for ourselves. We need to have a lot of patience and the ability to forgive ourselves. The quality of forgiveness is essential to compassion. First needing to forgive ourselves and then we can begin forgiving others. If we look at our own meditation practice, there's many times that if it weren't for compassion and forgiveness, we would only be beating our heads against the wall. Times when we're faced with immense difficulty, painful states, sometimes we have the energy to open to them. And then other times we have to recognize that we're at the edge of what we can open to. When we forgive, it's a way of releasing the burden of the past. We release held tension, anger, fear, and prejudice that we have been carrying around. States of mind that cause us great suffering. And these torments of mind are what keep us from meeting each moment fresh. Forgiveness can be very difficult It takes us to the edge of what we can accept. In this acceptance, we need to allow whatever feelings arise and embracing them with a loving and compassionate heart. And it's not something we can force. Through reconnecting again and again with the remembrance of the inherent goodness of all beings, it helps to give us the courage to do so. I know times when I found it really hard to forgive another, if I could simply remember their humanness, this humanness that we share, the suffering that we share, it helped me to have the courage to let go. Sometimes we may experience sorrow, sympathy, or grief masking itself as compassion. And this is where we open to the suffering, 
but we don't have the balance to hold it, and we find ourselves overwhelmed or broken by it. It may occur in the form of aversion. There may be a slight contempt in seeing someone as being weak or inferior to us, or we may be feeling sorry for them. But we're not really connecting with the suffering. It has an element of pulling away from it. It can be a self-righteous anger, something where there's still a me and a you rather than, this is suffering, what can we do about it? When we're really in touch with suffering, the blame falls away. It's simply our heart's response, our heart's response. In opening to suffering, I found both the tendency to feel responsible for other people's suffering and to want to try and take on their suffering myself, which is of no good to anyone. And Joseph once said a line that helped me a lot of times when when I would be at the brink of feeling overwhelmed by suffering. And he said, only the emptiness can hold it all. It's when we carry the burden of suffering that we become crushed by it. Often we get this mistaken idea that if we become really loving and compassionate that we'll become disempowered, weak, that other people will be able to take advantage of us, walk all over us. And this is really only a misconception. Compassion is a very strong state. And when we can connect with the suffering without fear, we are accepting things as they are which doesn't mean we're not able to respond to situations, but that just we're more able to see more clearly, to see the whole situation. Our response then comes from a place of connection rather than a conceptual level of how things ought to be or a habituated response. This is not to set up an ideal of how we should be, Over and over again, we get caught in our habituated responses to suffering, whether it's to deny them, to suppress it, to react through anger and aversion. But in these moments, can we be compassionate towards ourselves, being honest yet non-judgmental of what is happening, not adding to the suffering that we feel, but in that moment to connect with the pain of contraction, fear, separation, or abandonment. Connecting with an honesty and acceptance. Although we live in a time of immense suffering, great trouble, we also live in a time where there is a lot of very courageous beings, people who exhibit very strong faith and courage in the face of a lot of difficulty. 
one of these people is a he was a man called Frankie Parker and he was a multiple murderer that he was um, he killed his mother father and sister-in-law and then in a standoff with the police he wounded a police officer so he found himself on death row and while he was there at first he was known as a very disturbed man who created a lot of difficulty for other people and at one point he was put into solitary confinement and he was alone in the cell and in his rage he he screamed out to a guard to pass him a book and so this bar this guard passed him a book the closest book that was at, at hand which happened to be a book on the buddhist teachings so he began reading this book and even though he was in this tortured state he recognized the truth of these teachings that from where he was that freedom was still possible in the remainder of his life he practiced diligently he became a beacon of light on death row just before his death he was a teacher to many he was a teacher to his family and friends at the time of his death he was able to face it without fear and this was his final words for 8 years i have worked on kindling a small light of compassion out of the deep pain that i have called caused this little light is now extinguished i pray that others who have committed heinous crimes may find this small light an inspiration and may spread the flame of compassion to eliminate the entire universe so that all beings may realize the fundamental compassionate nature that resides within all of us this man came from a background of a lot of pain he had done a lot of unskillful things in his life and yet he could still see the way to freedom and it can serve as an inspiration to all of us that no matter how insurmountable the difficulties that arise are that we can still stay steady with this compassionate heart the freedom is possible for each and every one of us compassion is oftentimes a very humbling experience it's not one where pride easily arises even to be fearless in the face of suffering if we're connected to the suffering we know of its depths and it's not anything that we want to brag about it's simply that we're called into action no bones about it it's a spontaneous and natural act Shantideva an 8th century Tibetan master says even when i have done things for the sake of others no sense of amazement or conceit arises it is just like having fed myself i hope for nothing in return
Compassionate action in our lives may be quite simple. We don't have to go out and stop the wars, save the hungry. For some of us, this may be appropriate and call for action. But all of us can do it by facing the demons inside. They may be demons of fear, hatred, anger, frustration, boredom. When they arise, simply embracing them with kindness and care. Our practice can be a form of compassionate action. It's our willingness to come to understand the nature of suffering. It becomes an expression of our deepest values. It's compassion's function to remember, however great the joy and happiness may be, there are still those caught in suffering and it will move us again and again into action in the world. And I found in my own practice, in my own life, that when I really hear of suffering or I touch that place in myself, it motivates me in my practice. It motivates me to sit, not as a way of retracting from the world, but as a way of coming to understanding. And it helps to bring about the balance of mind to be able to stay present in the face of suffering. Compassion needs the balance of wisdom, or we lack the means, the skillfulness, to know when it's right to act and when this will only lead to greater suffering. It's as if we're aware of the immensity of suffering, but they lack the wisdom to know what to do. We so often see it in the world where there may be people who are working for very good causes, and they're, and, but what they do is go about working for these causes with the same anger and rage that they're reacting to. And it's in the silence of our hearts that wisdom can arise. To have a compassionate heart is to be motivated by the desire for all beings to be free from suffering. To move from this place of intention, not being fearful, or overwhelmed in the face of pain and sorrow, but having a continual faith in the capacity of the heart to love. I used to have a dog named Kama, Kama, which um, I was told meant love, but I later learned meant desire. (laughs) 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 Anyhow, in my life she is somewhat of a Jataka tale that may be not quite so grandiose as some of the Jataka tales, but it points to me how we all have these very simple teachers in our life. And she was a very special dog to me. And I always felt like she had a very kind and compassionate heart. And sometimes this would get exhibited, that one day there was a cat that was playing with a spider. And she noticed this, and then she suddenly distracted the cat, and the spider got away. She had this way of trying to always help the underdog. And then one day, there was these uh, two very big dogs that were playing with a little puppy and herself, and they were all out playing in the yard together. And then at some point, this playfulness got pretty rowdy, and the dogs were 
starting to pick on the little puppy. And I watched her, and she stood there, and she looked around, and then there was this old tin can that was there. So she went over, and she started batting this can around as if it was the greatest thing in the world. And very soon, these two big dogs came over and wanted to play too, and the little puppy was free. (laughs) And, you know, once that happened, she just backed away. And, And one thing that I really saw from her is how she had this playfulness of intervening in these situations, how she had a way of... I, and I'm sure it was deliberate. Some people might wonder, but <laughs> I could see that she would just steer things in the direction with a very light heart. So through our practice, cultivating the qualities of wisdom and compassion, taking flight on these wings of freedom, Let's sit for a moment. Sargadatta Maharaj says, Wisdom tells me I'm nothing. Love tells me I am everything. Between the two, my life flows. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.